And uh, welcome. It's great to see everyone. I'm Silas Sham, associate pastor here, and um, it is a privilege to be here today with you. I see a couple new faces, so welcome as well. Um, We're glad you're here. If you would, please join me for a word of prayer as we reflect on the words that Alicia just read for us. Holy God, thank you for this opportunity to gather today, to worship, to hear from you, and be formed by you. I pray that these spoken words would be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Let us discern your will and make us more like you. We pray this with Christ, by the Spirit, amen and amen. All right, so, quick poll of the room. Who here got their pictures taken with Santa when you were growing up? Lots of hand. Okay, very good. I'm sure you have hilarious stories, hilarious pictures. If you have any that are uniquely funny, like exceptionally great, please show them to me after. I'd love to see them. Lucky for you. But, you know, in my family, we didn't really do that thing. It's not a thing that the Shams did. Uh, We didn't go see Santa at the mall. I actually remember vaguely, I was talking to my twin this week, saying, do you remember ever going to the mall? And we both had this vague memory. I think it was on a school field trip. So cutting edge (laughs) in Canada, you know, great field trip there. That's the only time I really remember mall Santa stuff. So I got to college and I figure, you know, I should make up for lost time. I'm, I'm a couple years late on this trend. So every year, a bunch of my friends and I would gather together, we'd suit up, And we would visit Santa at the mall for our annual Christmas card. And this morning, for your viewing pleasure, (laughs) I have these pictures to show you. So there's the first one. And we uh, look real, real smart, as they say. And then we go to the next one. We get a little more rowdy. I don't know if you can see. You can't see necessarily. I actually grew my hair out for seven months to have a half mullet, half bowl cut, called the bullet. It was great. (laughs) Next one. I turned into an elf here on the side. And then last one here. This This is probably the greatest idea I've ever had in my life. I dressed up as Santa. Who's the real one? We don't know. So there's that. Christmas pictures for you. Again, our annual Christmas card. College was a fun time, y'all. All right, bring it back. I think that when we talk about the text we read today, right, when we talk about this text that we read, um, when we read it in the way that we teach this text, in the way that it's taught to us, we think that this is like an encounter between kids, the ones bringing kids, disciples, and Jesus, and we think it's like a trip to the mall to go see Santa, right? So you have these parents, and they want their, par- they want their uh, photo to be taken uh, with the kids so they can send out Christmas cards or something like that. The kids are kind of a mixed bag. You know, sometimes they're rowdy, sometimes they're not. They're just being kids. Some are dressed up, some are ready to get the pictures over with. Then they run into some disgruntled elves, right? They're a little grumpy. Santa's busy. North Pole is, North Pole is closed. But then Santa, he steps out of his workshop, he stops the elves, he makes this inspirational speech, the kids get their pictures taken, everyone shares milk and cookies, it's a great day, 
It's a Christmas miracle. We're good to go, okay? That's how we think this text works, or the encounter at least. And we treat it like it's a trip to the mall that starts out going wrong, but then ultimately it all works out in the end. There's a whole bunch of different threads that we pull out of a reading like this, a different approach to this. So we'll hear things from this text that say, Jesus wants us to be childlike, but not childish. Right? Or the Christian life is a life of dependence on God, like a child. Children are at the center of God's kingdom. Jesus wants us to, as the hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let me make this clear. There is nothing wrong with these readings. They are good readings. They preach well. They teach well. They're digestible. They contain deep truths within them, and they're fair play. They're, they're good readings. But I think also, for many of us, especially if we've spent a lot of time in church, it can be easy to look at this passage and feel like we've wrung it dry. Like everything there is to glean from this text, we've gleaned. I mean, we hear it at children's church, youth camp, VBS. This is one of the ones to highlight how important children are, and that is important. It's important to hear. But this week, as I was preparing, I just didn't feel at ease rehashing what most of us have probably heard many times before, or what we already know. And we're in a series called Drawn to the Margins. It seems fitting now, even more than normal, but especially now, to read this text from a location inside the text that is generally not our own. Right? There's much to be learned in the margins, much to be learned with people in the margins, from the margins. And so this morning, we're going to look at things in a way that might seem unfamiliar. But as we explore God's word together, I want you to, want you to consider how God might be speaking to us. Like you've heard me say this before. We want to let the word read us as we read the word, right? We want to be shaped by the one that the Bible is pointing to. So that's what we're going to do. This text is not a safe text, right? It's not as simple as we've made it out to be. If you notice the threads that are normally pulled out from this text, it's striking, at least in my experience, that the emphasis or application that we always land on is some kind of encouragement for us to take up childlike faith, become childlike in our faith. Or sometimes we'll hear a push towards, it's a simple faith. Right? Don't overcomplicate things. Which is kind of funny, because many of the parents in the room know that kids are anything but simple. But we focus on that thread anyways. In verse 15, Jesus says that if anyone doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child, that person will never enter the kingdom of God. So it's understandable that as a church, we tend to focus on that thread. Like it's the most direct command in this, in this passage. Again, it's a fair reading. It bears good fruit. 
But what if I told you that there's a lot more going on than just that thread? Like, that thread's main thrust is concerned with this question. How do I make sure I'm going to enter the kingdom of God? And if we look closely at this text from the location of the kids, that's what we'll pull out. But if we change our location in the text to the location of the disciples rather than the kids, this story changes drastically. So it changes from a story of exhortation, right, if you're the kids, become like a little child so that you might enter the kingdom of God. And if we're the disciples, it actually becomes a text of confrontation, where Jesus is critiquing his closest followers, the ones who have been with him the longest, because they're living with the wrong paradigm. They've got the wrong operating system. Is everyone catching that switch? If we change where we sit in the text, the text asks us completely different questions. So we'll read from the child perspective. And it all becomes a story about our personal walk with Christ. Like, I'm just trying to get to Jesus. Nothing's going to stand in my way because I'm a child of God. But isn't it more true to life that more often than not, whether we mean it or not, we, Christians, tend to act more like the disciples in this text who are trying to live faithfully. Remember, they're trying to do the right thing. But in the process of trying to do the right thing, they end up pushing people away from Jesus. Like read from the location of the disciples, this story becomes a story about Jesus writing our skewed view of the world. And so what do you think our city would say? We stopped 100 people on the street, 100 Seattleites, and we asked them, Hey, friend, do you see any similarities between who you define as church, whatever you define that as, whoever you define that as Christian? Do you see any overlap between the disciples in this text and how they're rebuking people and Christians? Do you see any overlap? And I think, if I think about all the guys I play soccer with who don't go to church, who didn't grow up in church, I would hear a resounding yes. Right? They would see uncanny overlap between the exclusion executed by the disciples and the exclusion that the Christian world has been guilty of, that we have been guilty of. So in real life, we are a lot more like the disciples in this story than we would like to admit. And this is challenging. This is convicting. Do you see how the way this story reads us changes as we move our self-assumed location from the location of the kids to the location of the disciples? Again, this is not a safe text. It's asking us tough questions this morning. Really tough questions. So in Mark 9, 33, the critique that we see in, G in Mark 10 what we just read. This critique is all set up, okay? Remember, Jesus and his disciples, they're going to Capernaum. They get to a house, and Jesus asks the group, hey, what were you guys talking about as we were walking here? Like, what, what were you talking about? And then the text says, no one 
wanted to respond, and no one did respond because they were arguing about who was the greatest, who was the most devout, who was the best disciple among them. And then Jesus says these words. We all know these words. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he calls a child from the household, and he hugs them, he welcomes them, he humanizes them in a space where children were supposed to be neither seen nor heard, right? The men are talking. This is adult business. But Jesus brings in a child into this space. And then he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. So the command is set. Disciples, Christians, Bethany, how do we receive God? How do we receive Jesus? By receiving the lowest in society. We see the word child, and we immediately think cute, lovable, little human. Right? That's what we think of when we see the word child. But in society at this time, in this world, children were seen a little differently. They were seen as assets without agency. Right? Children were seen as assets without agency. Completely different idea of childhood and childlikeness. So to quickly put this into perspective, in the Greco-Roman world, in this time, there are no rules against exposure or the selling of children if you couldn't support them. Right? There just weren't laws. This wasn't against the law. And so, indeed, this is what many families actually had to do. If they didn't have land or industry, they would resort to something like this if they faced harsh economic disruptions. And this is, again, not against the law. Children weren't seen the same way as we look at children today. People were married off in their teens. Typically, people lived 40 years. But people, um, teens were married off in their mid-teens, especially if you're a girl, it's probably earlier. If you're a male... It might be a little later. And the life stage that we think of as childhood, childhood just doesn't exist in this world. It happens differently. So daughters were prized for marriageability, right? This is why this is why this is why virginity was so important, right? Through marriageability, daughters would extend a family's line or prestige or honor through association with other families. And for sons, In this world, at this time, they were seen as assets who would extend the family lineage and a family's control over a trade or a land in a specific time, right? So if your whole family were carpenters, you had a bunch of sons, a fellow carpenter in your area had a bunch of daughters, in one generation, two generations, your family line is now monopolizing carpentry in your region. Like, this is how children were seen. This is how wealth was accrued. So Greco-Roman world, children didn't have the agency we think uh, that, that they have, that they have now. Right? Individuality also wasn't the same as it is in our culture. Individuality just didn't exist in the same way. Things were more communal. So children were assets. And all of that is to say, in Mark 9... Jesus has given the disciples clear teaching about how if they want to receive or acknowledge God, they cannot do so without receiving or fully acknowledging 
one of the most vulnerable groups of people in society. In this case, children. Even more specific to our passage in Mark 10 is that in verse 13, the word for child is specific to not a child who's ready to be married and not an infant, specific for a time gap of children between those two. So it's children who are slowly increasing their neediness, but not quite at the place where they can give back to the family wealth, right? They're increasing this way, but they can't quite work yet in the same way that older people would work. That's the word that we're, that's used specifically in the Greek, referring to that stage of childhood. So remember, this isn't about kids being brought to Santa. Right? It's not about going to the mall. In English, we think of bringing as transporting people, right? So they brought their kids to try and see Jesus. They're transporting them. But this isn't, doesn't quite capture what the text is saying as well. The word that is used there for bring is a unique word in that it's only used three times in Mark. And it's the word prospero, right? Prospero. It's a bringing that is a presenting or an offering of to Jesus. Right? So when Jesus heals a leper earlier on in Mark, and he says, you're clean, now go present or offer yourself to the priest so he can call you clean, that's the word that we're using. Right? It's not just transport yourself, it's present, bring yourself for the sake of some kind of ritual, right? for the sake of some kind of um, intent there. Right? That's the word that's being used, prospero. It also happens, remember the friends who lower, the, lower their friend through the roof? Right? He's on the stretcher, he can't walk. And so Jesus walks over, or sorry, um, they're trying to... They're trying to prospero, bring their friend to see Jesus with the intention of Jesus healing him, but they can't because of the crowd. So then they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And they offer, they bring their friend to Jesus. The same word is here, only three times in Mark. And so when we read this then, the parents aren't just transporting to see a celebrity to try and get an autograph or something. There is intention here where they are trying to bring their children, offer their children to Jesus so that he might bless them. Right? There is intention in the bringing and it's the intention of Jesus blessing them. And there's expectation there. Pros Pharaoh, that's the, that's the intent so the Greek, the Greek makes this very clear. People are bringing their children with the intent of Jesus wanting to bless them. And now, if we're reading from the, from the perspective of the, the, of the disciples, this is where things start to get a little uncomfortable for us. right? Because we know what's happening before. And it's not clear who the disciples rebuke. Like some translations in your Bible will emphasize that the disciples are rebuking the parents. Other translations will emphasize how the disciples are rebuking the children. It just says, they rebuked them. Unspecific. And I think this is brilliant because the intentional ambiguity here highlights two different ways 
that we as Christians get caught up in our own self-righteousness. Right? Two ways. So who the disciples critique speaks to us on two levels. On the one hand, see if you can think of a time where Christians, the church, ourselves, think if you can, see if you can think of a time where we have rebuked people who are trying to bring awareness to the most vulnerable people in society. We've shut down or criticized people who are trying to advocate on behalf of people and communities represented outside of these four walls. And then on the other hand, see if you can think of times where Christians, ourselves, disciples, have rebuked or criticized the most vulnerable people in our society directly. Right? Not going through the advocates, but directly. We may emphasize that Jesus is a God of love, but then we position ourselves as the gatekeepers who grant permission concerning who Jesus wants to see and who Jesus doesn't want to see. Like the disciples who rebuke both the people bringing the children and the children themselves, we have been guilty of doing the same thing with allies of vulnerable populations and the marginalized in our communities directly. So it's like the one time my brother, he was attending a church in the Northeast. It was after 9-11. He was in his first two years of college, and the church had been going, he'd been going to, through, they went through a series, a long series about loving your neighbor, and my brother was pressing in. He wanted to live faithfully. And so he took these words to heart when this series happened. And he gets his friend to come to church with him. His friend just comes along. His friend is Muslim. And he comes to church, and all the words that had been spoken over the last six weeks about the series that they'd gone through went out the window. And someone actually criticized my brother saying, what, do you, what did he think he was doing? Like, actually doing what the pastor had been preaching over the last weeks. And eventually my brother had to leave that church. He was forced out. And like the disciples who rebuked the parents for wanting their children to be blessed by Jesus. In this case, the church as an institution rebuked him and an ally. And for this, we must repent. Or what about the, same, the, the time the same brother, you know, he was in a church in Houston, he was living there, and he went to a church that made it very clear. Like they postured themselves as a quote-unquote progressive church. Right? And so the church said it was an open and safe space for all. They had this line about, welcoming all dreamers and like anyone who just wants to come to know God more. And so my brother's neighbor was going through a really tough time, months of just going through a tough time. And my brother was like, there's no better place than church. And so he invites his friends. His friend comes. He wasn't welcome. 
And then in a private meeting after this one Sunday, the pastor said to my brother, my brother was very close to the pastor, the pastor said, um, my brother's neighbor should have expected the hostility he received because of the colorful or loud clothes that he was wearing. This is the pastor saying this to my brother about someone who's come to church. In a, in a quote-unquote open church, right? So like the disciples who rebuked the children who wanted to encounter Jesus, the church rebuked my brother's neighbor directly and deemed that Jesus didn't have time for people like him. Friends, Jesus is the truth, the life. Jesus is the way. But unfortunately, there are times when we, the church, have gotten in the way. We've gotten between people who want to see Jesus and Jesus himself. And for this, we must repent. I warned us, this was not a safe text, right? Yes, this is about having childlike faith. Yes, this is about moving from child, childishness to childlikeness. It's about that. But this text is also a scathing critique of the disciples' conduct. And it's a text about Jesus' anger with which his, his anger with his own followers, right? When they think they're doing Jesus a favor but instead have missed the point entirely. And they're keeping people from encountering him. Remember, we looked at it earlier. Mark 9 tells tells us that Jesus says to his disciples, if they want to receive God, they have to receive children into their lives. They have to view children as human. Jesus is doing this over and over in his life. He's humanizing the unhumanized, the dehumanized. And they need to move from a view of children as assets to a view of children as people with agency. They have to be able to see God in some of the lowest members within the world's social order at that time. And if they can see God there in the lowest of the social order, they will be able to see God everywhere. But when push comes to shove, this is in Mark 9, when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road, when we get to Mark 10, where the disciples have the chance to act on what they've just heard, they have the chance to put their money where their their mouth is, right? They fail the test. They fail the test. They miss the mark. And here's the most sobering thing about this passage of Scripture. I hate that this is true. But if you're anything like me, you've missed the mark too. At some point in our lives, we've all missed the mark. 
We live out our Christianity in exactly the same way that Peter does when he slices the ear off of the guard in the garden. We think we need to stand up for Jesus. And then Jesus looks at us and says, what are you doing? I'm a man of sorrows. I'm the man of sorrows. You don't need to stand up for me. I told you to stand up with me. I told you to stand up with me. I'm going to the cross. I call you to do the same. Why are you rebuking people who want to come to know me? You've got in mind the things of man, not the things of God. You have misunderstood the kingdom of God. This text is not a safe text. And God is not a safe God either. Hear this wisdom from C.S. Lewis. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, and he's good. This text is not safe. God is not safe. But this text is good. And God is good. And our faith isn't safe, but our faith is good. The question is, is the faith we're living, is that God's faith? Or do we live with an idle faith that we've made in our own image? Is the faith we're living with God's faith, or is it an idle faith that we've made in our own image? This is what this text is asking us this morning. I recognize this hasn't been the traditional Bethany three-point sermon that we're used to hearing. That's intentional. There's so many other kinds of sermonic forms, right? So many ways that form also changes how we hear texts. So we didn't do the three-point thing because this has other things to say to us, friends. This book is more than three points. Rant, I guess. However, there are three main things. (laughs) There are three main things I would like us to meditate on as we close, okay? I'll concede a bit. We're going to take a few minutes now, okay? And we're going to meditate on three prompts, three questions, okay? And then I'll end us in prayer. We'll take a couple minutes to do so. And then we'll go to the table. 
where we will receive the body and the blood of Christ through people in our own community. Because if we can receive Christ here within our body, hopefully we're being shaped to receive Christ from others outside our community. But three things. Perhaps you might find it helpful to close your eyes. Maybe you're the kind of person who processes by writing. You do you, whatever you need. Here's the one thing I ask, okay? The one thing that I'd love for you to do. Be honest with yourself. I'm not going to ask anyone to share your answers. This This is you here. This isn't about trying to get the right answer. But friends, be honest with yourself. Be brutally honest. And in your honesty, listen for the voice of God and consider what God might be saying to you. Okay? Here we go. I want you to think about your own personal social ladder. Think about your social ladder. Everyone has one. Everyone has biases. Even the most biased, conscious person in the world still has blind spots. We all have people that we love, and we all have people that scare us. Everyone can think of people who make us feel excited to get to know, and people who make our blood boil, who make us anxious. Be honest with yourself and think about your social ladder. Who are you totally at ease with? Is there a person that you just seem to click with? Are there people you just seem to click with? Who are people that you trust in your life? And who are you ambivalent to? Or who are people that anger you? Think about your own personal social ladder. Now, I want you to imagine that next week, someone near the bottom of that ladder walks through these doors right here. Someone walks through our doors. Maybe they're experiencing homelessness. They might not be as well put together as we are. Maybe they look different than you. They live different than you. Maybe they believe different than you. They're from a different place. They vote different from you. They love different than you. Maybe the person coming through the doors next week is not just a hypothetical face representing a group either. 
Maybe the person who walks in next week is someone who is at the bottom of your social ladder and you know them by name. Check yourself. How do you imagine your initial response to seeing them walk through our doors? Imagine that next week, someone near the bottom of your ladder walks in the doors. And now, think about how you might interact with them. Are you like the disciples? Do you see their humanity? Are you able to see them with charity? Are you able to welcome them as Christ welcomes all? This isn't Sunday school. This isn't a glib, kill them with kindness thing. This isn't kumbaya. Think about your interaction and visualize what it would look like to welcome this person. Are you able to imagine this? Can you see them as a child of God? Just as you are a child of God. Take note of how you're feeling right now and think about your interaction with them. God, we come before you as people who indeed are broken. And in our brokenness, Lord, we repent of the times that we perpetuate the brokenness that's in us. And God, we pray that you would come and heal us. Make us whole. We sing so many songs. God, break our heart for what breaks yours. Let me see with your eyes. We want to love like you love. But we also acknowledge that that takes immense courage, and we don't always have that. And so we walk with you, God, day by day. And we pray that today, this week, every day in our lives, that you would be near to us, that we might reflect you and be you well in the world, that your spirit would enliven our lives, to make other people's lives more lively. That your spirit would empower us to love like you love. 
May we stand with you well. And now as we come to your table where you were broken for us, your body was broken, your blood was shed for the remission of sins. We pray first and foremost, forgive us, Lord. And as we receive these elements, be made whole and be made new in our life. Sustain us as we feast on the gifts of God for the people of God. And may you meet us in this encounter with you at the table. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.